You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. Well, if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 11. It's trying to come up with another statistic after Elijah's, and that was how many times I've heard some of those songs this last week. Uh, I can't. I can't begin to to count. Romans chapter eleven. We are working our way through Romans. We find ourselves in verse six. So let's just uh, read verses one through six together as we as we begin. Let's stand together as we we honor the reading of Scripture. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I alone am left And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, we thank you for your goodness, that you are a good, good Father, that you care about us, that you are faithful to us when we are not faithful, that you are better to us and bless us in ways that we cannot imagine. Lord, and we pray that as we come to our our text this morning, Lord, we pray that you would bless us again, that you would send your spirit to work in a, a wonderful way in our midst, that our eyes would be open, that we would just comprehend a, a glimpse of how amazing grace is. Lord, we pray that that as you work this morning, we would see Jesus Christ more clearly, that his name would be exalted. And if there are those here that haven't put their their faith and and trust in, in him, Lord, we pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There are some verses in Scripture that just seem to summarize glorious truths of the Christian faith. And the verses before us are are no exception to that. It's not that this verse, verse 6, just stands out on its own. But it highlights so much. I mean, there's so much that is contained in this one short little text. 
I mean, just think about this for a moment. In verse 5, Paul makes the, the comment at the end that there was a, a remnant that was chosen by grace. So I would be of the opinion that Paul adds verse 6 here so that we would be tempted not to read past that word grace there flippantly without taking time to, to ponder what that really means. That God took it and chose this, this remnant by His grace. And he says, if it was by works, then it wouldn't be by grace. Because grace must be grace and it can't be mixed with works. There's really... No wonder here that Paul would add verse 6 on to highlight grace. Grace is a, a major theme in the New Testament, major theme in the, uh, of the Apostle Paul. First of all, I think because Paul understands it so well. He understands the, the doctrines of grace to be crucial to the Christian understanding of salvation but also because that's such a reality in his own life. I mean, this isn't abstract theology just to, to ponder on, but it, it's, it's reality for Paul and us. Paul, as you most likely know, was uh, zealous for his religion. He was a Jew. In other words, he was extremely well-learned, and he literally fought for what he thought was true, when he saw a, a deviation from what he believed true, he tried to exterminate it. And of course, in the early stages of Christianity, there was no clear distinction between uh, the Jewish faith and the Christian faith. Christians saw themselves as a, a sect of Judaism. Jews didn't care for the teaching that Jesus was the Messiah. And it, and it was starting to, to frustrate some of the, the religious leaders of the time. And Paul himself then had a hand in trying to exterminate or eradicate the Christian faith before it really got off the ground because he saw it to be so dangerous and detrimental to what was going on in their faith. In fact, as he was on his way to arrest Christians, the Lord Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus, and from that moment, his life was radically changed. This is the way Paul describes this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says that he, like the rest of the Ephesian Christians, were dead in their sins. But there was a moment in which Christ made them alive, in which all things were different. And then he explains this by saying that it, has been, it is by grace that you have been saved. Isn't it interesting that Paul, the religious leader that he was before the Damascus Road, looked back on himself and said, I might have been religious, but I was dead. I was dead in my sins. In Paul's view, before his conversion, people were saved by works, by keeping the law. In fact, when we look back on the Old Testament, we see that there are about eight occurrences of the word grace in the Old Testament. Now, I'm not suggesting that the concept of grace isn't all over the Old Testament. It is. I'm speaking of the word. It wasn't explicit in the Old Testament like it is in the New Testament. In the New Testament, there are 128 occurrences. 
of the word grace. A remarkable difference. What Paul is doing here is drawing our attention to how amazing grace is. In fact, that would be the aim of the message. That is, that through thinking about grace as contrasted with works, we would be amazed by it, and it would start to consume our thinking. You notice the the title of the message, two things that characterize any Christian. Here's what they are. On one side, a profound sense of personal sin. Not just sin in general. But our sin, our unworthiness. The other thing that characterizes the Christian is a great and overwhelming awareness of the grace of God. Of course, those two items go together without the awareness of one's own sin. They will never understand grace. But the reverse is true, that one will never really understand grace unless they are greatly aware of their own sin before God. This is why Paul says in the text before us that if salvation was by works at all, Grace would not be grace. Now, we said that that grace was a great theme in the New Testament. Just want to highlight some of that, just a a brief portion of what Paul says. Just listen to some of Paul's words on the subject of grace. In Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, he says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Romans 5, 20-21 says, Where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.14 Sin shall not not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. Galatians 1.6 I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ in our turning to a different gospel. Second Timothy 1, 9 and 10. God has saved us and called us to be to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior. There are many more verses. In fact, I crossed a bunch of them off here for the sake of time. But there are a bunch of texts in which Paul speaks of the grace of God. And throughout these these verses, they, they might bring up several questions in our mind. They also underline the singular point of Romans 11.6, which is that grace and works are polar opposites, and they're not compatible with one another at all. Just think about that for a moment. It's common to hear something today like a a mantra that says, we're not under the law, we're under grace. I mean, that's biblical language. We just read it, Romans 6.14. 
says that sin shall not be your master because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. I fear, though, that when people say that as a mantra and are not quoting the text, that they're not under the law, they do not mean what Paul means in Romans 6. They mean that the law isn't relevant anymore. That it's obsolete. It's done away with. When, when people say that, I kind of cringe because so often it's used to, to soften sin. God of the Old Testament really cared about sin. He cared about obedience. He threw the hammer down. But the God in the New Testament just shows grace and mercy. The statement is issued to say something like, we're not under the law, but we're under grace. Therefore, God just accepts me the way that I am. You see how that view really lessens the weight of our own personal sin? When we read that statement in Romans 6, Paul begins by saying, Sin shall not be your master because you are not under the law. Paul is saying this not to suggest that sin isn't serious and obedience to the law doesn't matter. Paul is saying in Romans 6 that a healthy view of the law and sin and the grace of God leads to holy living. To be under the law in Romans 6.14 means that when it comes to salvation... We cannot earn salvation by keeping the law. If you're under the law, you cannot earn it that way. It would be our master. You'd only be held captive to it. But it's not because Christ Jesus kept the law on our behalf. Now it is by grace, His righteousness. From His perfect obedience becomes ours. This is what it means to be under grace. That He kept the demands of the law for us, and we did not earn that. It doesn't mean that God no longer cares about sin, and we're free to be whoever we are. That we can take and chuck the Old Testament, or unhinge it from the, the New Testament. That's not what He's saying here at all. So grace and works are opposites. That's the point of the text. We need to explain that. So if a person is saved by grace, it cannot be by works. Grace and works are incompatible. There is a, a view. It's called uh, synergism. A, a word that means different things work together to achieve uh, a single purpose. When it comes to salvation, synergism means that God and man work together to achieve salvation. Our good works or our foreseen faith or whatever merit there is there is mixed with God's grace. And those two things, our effort, God's grace, work together and achieve salvation. Synergism is a view that, in my mind, people have to look pretty hard to support because of the clear teachings of Scripture. And this verse in particular that if works are involved at all, then grace is not grace. If grace is to be grace, then it can't be by works. This is exactly what Paul chided the Galatians for in the first chapter, the text we, we just read there from Galatians, that, that they were turning to another gospel. This is what they were doing, is they were mixing works with grace. And when one does this, it's no longer grace. Grace. 
They were saying, yes, you can come to Christ, put your faith and, and trust in Jesus Christ, but if, if you're going to do that, you got to do some other things too. Like be obedient to the law, like be circumcised. You have to do those things in order to be right with Him. Paul's saying, wait a minute. You're mixing these two things and it's, it's not grace anymore. Well, let's say it backwards. If a person is saved by works, it cannot be of grace. Otherwise, work would not be work. You can't work for something and have it given to you at the same time. It doesn't make any sense. Either you worked for it and earned it, or you didn't. Listen to what Calvin says on this. He says this, The grace of God and the merit of works are so opposed to one another that if we establish one, we destroy the other. If then we cannot allow any consideration of works in election without obscuring the unmerited goodness of God, which Paul so greatly desired to commend to us in election. Those fanatics who make the worthiness which God foresees in us the cause of our election must consider what answer they would give to the Apostle Paul whether it is past or future works which, are, which we are considering, Paul's statement that grace leaves no room for works will always resound in our ears. You can't have it both ways. Calvin brings up how synergism often works. And we hear it frequently. One will say that salvation is by grace apart from works, but then when they are, they are pressed... They say that, that people are saved by what God sees or what God foresees in them. Some will say that, that God sees good works in them and therefore justifies them on that basis. God sees what you will do. Some will say that God foresees faith in them and therefore justifies them on that basis. But let me ask this. If God justifies or saves sinners based on foreseen good works, how is that not mixing grace and works and therefore rendering grace no longer grace? That view is a repudiation of the gospel. It makes salvation dependent on our works that we just haven't done yet. Well, what about foreseen faith? God looks down the tables of time, foresees that one is going to come to faith. Is that better? The problem with that view is that it turns faith into a work. And thus renders grace no longer grace. Salvation is still based on something that one does. In this case, it is based on having faith. Then God's salvation of the sinner is based on what God foresees in the sinner. In other words, it is based on what they will do. So what about faith then? We, we've said a lot about, about faith throughout the book of Romans. In fact, we said that a large portion of the book dealt with justification by faith alone. So the question could be here, is if it is, by, if it is faith that justifies, then what does it matter if God foresees it 
and then elects based on that purpose or, or not? And the answer to that question really lies in the term merit. So the issue is this. Do we do something, anything, to merit or earn our salvation? Like wages from a job. You do a job, you earn, you earn money. Those are wa- your wages. So if God looks down the tables of time, sees our faith, wouldn't that be by definition what merits our salvation? So to put faith in the equation is correct, but it isn't correct to make faith a work. That's really what Paul is emphasizing, I believe, in our, in our text. If something is by grace, it is not a work. For if it is a work, then it isn't grace anymore. So the question then is, where does faith come in? How, how, do, we, how do we think through this? Here's how we speak of faith. We are justified by our faith through God's grace. Someone might say, well, isn't that exactly what you're saying? That if we're saved because of our faith, then it's a work and not grace. I read one person that suggested that to solve this problem, what we do is we just define faith the way we want to define faith. As not a work. In fact, he says God is God and God can do that. God just says, okay, faith is never a work. So it's something that we do and we contribute to our salvation Right? Synergism is something we can contribute to our salvation, but God doesn't define it as a work. God just can define it however he wants. And he says, faith, everything else is a work, faith is not. The only thing you can bring to the table is your faith because that is not a work. Problem is, is that's a difference with no distinction. It doesn't matter what one calls it. It's something that merits or earns our salvation. It's what we bring to the table. And if we bring anything to the table, it's a work and renders grace, not grace. That's the text. The end result is the same. The correct way of thinking about this is that faith on the part of the believer is a result of something that God does. I want us to grasp this. Theologically, this is called regeneration. It is God giving one a a new and divine life. Think about it this way. We often pray that the Spirit would work in in our midst, in in our worship service, in such a way that He would open the eyes of those who do not believe and allow them to see the truth and the beauty of the gospel. What we are asking is that the Spirit regenerate people. That he takes people sovereignly and makes them alive so that they can see the truth of the gospel and then respond to it in faith. Faith is a response to what God does. He opens your eyes and you see. That makes sense? What happened when, when Jesus was walking along and he saw the blind man? And he takes some, some, some dirt and he spits it and he makes a little paste and he puts it on his eyes. The guy goes and washes it off and then he opens his eyes and he, and he sees. It's the same here. Faith is a response to what God has done. 
gives us eyes to see, a heart to grasp the gospel in faith. It's believing and trusting. And that does not happen apart from regeneration. It doesn't happen apart from the work of God in the life of the individual. We've already mentioned Ephesians 2 already. Let's just go back to it. Just notice the the flow in these verses. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive. That is, God regenerated us. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. What happens when you're made alive? You breathe. As a response to being made alive. Going from from death to life then is a response to what God has done. That is faith. And all of this is, is by grace. It's not mixed with works. Therefore, it can't be rendered not grace. We do nothing to merit what God has done. If you're here and you are a believer this morning, get this. You have done nothing to merit what God has done in your life. Two things that characterize a Christian, right? Overwhelming awareness of your personal sin. An amazement of God's grace. That he would take somebody who is dead in their sin and make them alive. Not because of anything they've done. Not because they can bring anything to the table. But because of his own goodness and mercy. Let me just see if we can go back quickly and and put some of this together and show how the importance and necessity of letting grace be grace works itself out in the doctrines that we've already mentioned here. So first, let's just use the language of Ephesians chapter 2 in, in, in verses 1 through 10 there. Think, think about these things. So the, the first one is, is the, the doctrine of sin and depravity. So dead in our transgressions and sins. Think about that phrase There are some that have a misunderstanding of sin and therefore have a false view of grace. What I'm saying here is that if we have a correct view of sin and depravity, it leads us by necessity to a proper view of grace. Sometimes it isn't so much doctrines of predestination or foreknowledge or all those things that is a hang-up for us, but it's actually the doctrine of sin and depravity. Think about it in terms of three different possibilities that we have when it comes to views of sin and depravity. Some people come to this subject and they deny sin. Uh, these people might say, well, we're not perfect, that's obvious, you look around, and, and we're not perfect, but we're learning, we're growing, we're evolving, we're getting better. And we just don't call it sin. We're, we're, you're, you're moving toward, you're progressing. So in a, in a medical, physical sense, then, we're not corrupted. Our nature, our, our person is not corrupted by sin. We're just not perfect, we're getting better. By the way, prosperity gospel preachers promote that view often. Second, some admit imperfections, but argue it's possible to correct them. So some might say, well, yeah, we're, we're sinners, but it's not that big a deal because we can just correct them. In other words, we can make ourselves better if we want to. Some people read the Bible this way. 
that the Bible is primary, uh, primarily then a book of, of moral values, and if we implement what we read there in those morality tales, then we deal with the imperfections in our life, and we deal with sin that way. That's where a lot of us are tempted to go, is land a little softer there. Third, the biblical view is that we are hopelessly lost in our sin and that there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to make our lives better concerning our sin problem. If we are going to make any progress, it is going to come from outside ourselves and not within. That's the biblical view of sin. And that view is what necessitates grace. That's, that's the point. That a proper view of sin and depravity leads to a proper view of grace. Grace isn't something that just comes along and assists. When, when Paul equates the sinner as being dead in sin, and when Romans 3 says that there is no person righteous, and that all do not seek God, we understand that to mean that human beings are not just slightly corrupted, but are corrupt in their nature. They're corrupt at their core. It's because of this understanding of human sinfulness that we also understand that we cannot do anything to repair the damage that has been done. This leads us to a second truth, a second doctrine, the doctrine of regeneration. We talked about that. But the doctrine of regeneration also necessitates a proper view of grace. Just as the doctrine of depravity does. We, we talked about this already. We used the word regeneration. The idea there is new birth. And the famous text in Scripture that speaks of this is Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, What must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? What must I do to be saved? And you know Jesus' answer. God, you, you must be born again. And of course he didn't understand that. He, he didn't make much sense to think that of that in, in physical terms. But that's kind of the point, isn't it? Jesus was talking about something that has to happen here that is humanly impossible. If we control the new birth in some way, then this would depend on us, and salvation would not be holy of God, and it would render grace not grace. It must be from grace, start to finish. New birth must be. Third, this is through faith. Faith is receiving what God gives, it's trusting, it's believing in, in Him. Please understand. This and salvation is by grace through faith, that all of this implies that, that grace is not, or that faith is not a work. Salvation must be by grace, and it must be opposed to works. I like the definition of faith, receiving what God gives. God gives new birth. We, we receive it. That's, that's faith. It's belief. It's reliance on what God has done. Spurgeon wrote this concerning faith. He said, Faith is not a blind thing. 
For faith begins with knowledge. It's not a speculative thing. For faith believes facts of which it is sure. It's not unpractical. It's not a dreamy thing. For faith trusts and stakes its destiny upon the truth of revelation. Faith is the eye which looks. Faith is the hand which grasps. Faith is the mouth which feeds upon Christ. So, at this point, one might be thinking, so what can I do to be saved? What, what can I do to be saved? That's, that's really the point of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, wasn't it? You cannot enter into your mother's womb. That doesn't make, that doesn't make any sense. Jesus said, as he continues, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. The point is that new birth depends on the sovereign work of the spirit. Salvation must be from God, start to finish, But what is it? What can we do to earn that salvation? What do we have to do? The answer is nothing. What we can do, not to earn it, but what we can do is respond to what God has already done for us, we can, we can see the, the gospel. We can see the truth. We can recognize that our sinfulness deserves divine justice. But Jesus, who was perfect, took and bore that divine weight, that penalty of sin for every person that would place their faith and trust in Him. So our sin is given to Jesus. He bore it on the cross for us, was raised again in victory over death. What we can do and bring God to merit salvation is nothing. But we can respond to what he has already done in faith. What can we bring him? Martin Luther said, all we can bring is empty hands. I contribute nothing. We don't earn our salvation. Our salvation doesn't come by works. It doesn't come by some merit. It comes through Jesus Christ. It comes by faith in what He has done for us. We are people who are desperate sinners and in desperate need of God's grace. And the Christian, the Christian sees this. The Christian sees that I am a, a tremendous sinner. I, am, I was dead in my transgressions and sins, but God made me alive. And in that understanding of, of redemption, of depravity, 
we understand how amazing grace is. That God could take a sinner such as me and change me and give me life. My friends, this morning we read this text. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Let grace be grace. We don't contribute anything. We fully trust and rely on what he has already done for us. That's our task. That's our job. To believe. To trust. Not in our own, not in our own goodness, not in our own merit, but in what he has already done for us. That's the gospel. Love it. Because in it, we see that grace is amazing. And it prompts people to write songs about it. Like amazing grace. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.